We're continuing to look at how the early pioneers during, towards the end of the Second Great Awakening came to an understanding that Jesus was coming soon. And uh, so today we're going to be taking a look at Daniel chapter 7. Last week we did take a look at Daniel chapter 2, and Daniel 2 is sort of the introduction to symbolic Bible prophecy. Daniel 7 continues it, and you'll remember that in the book of Daniel we learn basic principles to help us understand end-time Bible prophecy. We learned last week there are a number of principles that we see, because in the book of Daniel we have the, the prophecy, and then right after that we have the interpretation. So that gives us the understanding of how prophecy works. We saw that image of Daniel chapter 2 and how, how uh, Daniel explained to Kim, King Nebuchadnezzar that it, it represented empires to come. Today we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 continues down the same vein of uh, Daniel chapter 2, but it, it teaches us additional principles. Now, a couple weeks ago, we talked about different ways of interpreting Bible prophecy, symbolic prophecy. There are three main schools of prophetic interpretation, historicism, futurism, and preterism. We talked about how uh, preterism says the prophecies have pretty much all been done and, and fulfilled uh, soon after the time of the prophet. They are basically contemporaneous prophecies. Um, futurism says they're basically all in the future. There's this gap, and the prophecies are going to be reactivated, re you might say, when, for example, the... Uh, tribulation begins, or in the rapture, or whatever the event uh, may be, depending on the interpreter. Historicism says the prophecy began with the time of the prophet and continued with a, 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 an unbroken stream of predictions until the very time of the end. Now, if you look at these three schools of thought, if you look at these three schools of thought, what do we see here? Do we see the, uh, uh, the, the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2? Uh, more or less representing historicism, preterism, or futurism. And I say that it's clearly teaching the concepts of historicism. That is to say that the prophecy began at the time of the prophet, and we have this timeline that's representing the prophet. We can follow it down historically, event after event after event, until we find the events that aren't yet fulfilled, and that's where we are, right? We're somewhere along that stream of prophetic time. And we're going to be looking today in Daniel chapter 7 at another, another one of those prime characteristics of historicism, the fact that the little horn of Daniel chapter 7, sometimes referred to as the Antichrist, is not something that's yet to come in the future, as futurism says, but it's actually something that's already come about. And we're going to look at that more carefully. So I believe from the very first vision of Daniel chapter 2, I believe we have good compelling evidence that Daniel is teaching us to interpret in-time symbolic Bible prophecy in the, in, the, in the manner that historicism interprets it. And so we're going to look at that more carefully as we go along. Um, Daniel chapter 7 uses different symbols. So let's go ahead and begin here with Daniel chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me there. We're going to notice that the interpretation is found in the same chapter, although not all the symbols are necessarily in, uh, interpreted in the same chapter. We do find the explanation Daniel's given by Gabriel, by the angel, in the same chapter. Um, 
other symbols we can find in other parts of the Bible. And like Daniel chapter 2, it follows a historicist stream of prophetic time. And it teaches us a new principle that we're going to be looking at here today. Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I in my night vision by night... Uh, I saw in my night vision by night, and behold, four, the four winds of heaven strove upon the great sea. Now, the four winds of heaven are generally referred to in the Bible, the winds of heaven, the four winds. are sort of like the east, the, the west, the north, the south, sort of like from all directions. So you can imagine a storm that's blowing from all directions. That's sort of the picture that Daniel's seeing. And he's, it, the storm is blowing on the sea, Right. And the sea is itself a symbol here. We, we find it as a, a symbol of uh, in end-time Bible prophecy. In Revelation chapter 17, uh, God explains what, a, what waters represent when it says the sea, the waters which you saw in verse 15 are, 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 are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So what Daniel is seeing here is the winds blowing upon the sea. He's seeing strife and commotion upon the in the populated areas of the world now how do we know that winds represent strife um, you can keep your finger here in daniel 7 if you'd like i'm just going to read you one verse from jeremiah chapter 51 i want you to see an example of how these prophecies are interpreted how william miller and the other early expositors who are discovering the meaning of these prophecies how they would have interpreted them in jeremiah chapter 51 it says in verse 1, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up against Babylon and against them that dwell in the midst of them that rise up against me a destroying wind. Do you see that? A destroying wind. And if you keep reading, it talks about war, about archers and, and swordsmen. And verse 4 says, The slain shall fall in the land of the Chaldeans and they that are thrust through, through in her streets. What's that wind that, that uh, Jeremiah is using to describe? He's describing war. He's describing bloodshed. So in Daniel chapter 7, what we're finding is that there, there are... There, Daniel is seeing the populated region of the world in strife and commotion. And out of these strifes and commotions, verse 3, four great beasts came up from the sea, different from one another. Verse 4 says, The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And I beheld till the wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth, and made stand upon the earth as a feet, uh, the, the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Now here, this first, this first symbol, we don't have Daniel saying, you are this head of gold, like we do in Daniel chapter 2. But we're going to see an explanation to follow that is pretty clear. Daniel's talking about the same four kingdoms. Now, if we... If we want to see that in the Bible, we can compare Scripture with Scripture. And this is what Miller and his associates did. They found, for example, in Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 7, the, the nation of Babylon was in fact described by a contemporary prophet of Daniel as a lion. It says this, the lion has come up from his thicket and the destroyer of nations is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make your land desolate. Your cities will be laid waste without inhabitant. The prophet Jeremiah is predicting the destruction that Babylon would bring, and what does he call Babylon? The lion. Um, 
very clearly here, this is, a, this is, a, uh, this is a, a prophecy that would not have been hard for them to understand. And you know, what God is doing here is not an unusual thing, is it? Don't we still represent nations with animals today? Um, when I was in Alaska a few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to see the bald eagle. And in fact, I should have brought some pictures. I got some pictures of the bald eagles. Um, at first, it was like, wow, there's a bald eagle! You know, and uh, we were excited and trying to get every picture. And after about, I don't know, a few hundred of them, you start to say, oh, there's a bald eagle. Um, although my little niece and nephew were still happy whenever they found a, an eagle as we were driving. But we use animals to represent kingdoms. God does the same. Anybody remember what the former USSR was represented by? The bear, that's right. Um, and so animals are used as symbols and these wings, these eagles' wings, notice what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand. So we understand wings to be symbolic of speed and rapidity and uh, quickness, especially in military might. And this describes the nation of Babylon. Um, this was, in fact, Babylon's own symbol, we find out. And um, we have here a picture of the recreation of the gate of Babylon. This is the Ishtar Gate. And throughout the reliefs and the, the ceramic tiles of the city of Babylon, eagle, the, not the eagle, the lion with eagle's wings was prominently featured. You see here, you see the lion, and you can even see the wings that were um, reflected in this relief or in this, uh, these ceramic tiles. This star great gate was constructed by Nebuchadnezzar in around, or around 575 B.C., and it was the eighth gate of the city of Babylon, but it was the main gate, the primary gate. And over this were two, two lions, actually, with another um, animal in the middle, but the two lions facing each other. You're only seeing the left side of this, of this um, artwork that was over the main entrance of this city. So the lion is prominently featured in the bricks, in the artwork of Babylon. And this is, this is what we can learn from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, we are seeing God again using symbols to depict reality, right? Different symbols, not the metal, not the image or the idol that would appeal to a, um, you know, an idolater in Daniel chapter 2, the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. But now he's using animals as a symbol of different empires. 605 to 539 was the first empire. And um, this is how the explanation came about. Um, when, it, when it talks about the explanation, um, he says in verse 17 of Daniel 7, these great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. Now, some might read there and say, well, that's just Nebuchadnezzar then, four kings, right? The Bible uses the word kings and kingdoms. It's more like thrones. Um, the Bible uses these, ter these terms interchangeably in Daniel chapter 7. Verse 23, for example, it says, uh, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth. So what we find here is that we have symbols and the Bible is explaining those symbols itself, right? And as we move on, we notice that Babylon was not the only symbol. We would expect the next empire of... From, from remembering from Daniel chapter 2, we would expect the next empire to come along, and indeed it does. 
it's represented as a bear. And it's, it's very interesting how these word pictures, or not word pictures, these pictures that are worth a thousand words, how much they tell us about the empire. The Bible says, in, it's, it's just in one short phrase, it's a bear with three ribs in its mouth, and it's, it's raised up on one side. Um, and what, what does that mean? Well, simply, in order to conquer Babylon, Medo-Persia had to take over three territories, Bad, Lydia, Egypt, and then Babylon, who were competing for the uh, supremacy in that part of the world. And so these three ribs represent these three portions or three territories of the kingdom. And uh, raised up on one side, you have... Remember, it's Medo-Persia. It's a combination of Media and Persia. Two empires came together. Darius and Cyrus, um, they came together, and they together conquered those three empires and eventually Babylon to conquer the city of Babylon and take over the uh, supremacy. And so these, these two powers, one raised itself up first. Um, whether you look at it as Cyrus being the general who was the, the, the younger and the more powerful one, or if you look at as Darius being the first king of the United Empire, because they actually agreed they would alternate between Persia and, and Media. Um, and so they, uh, Darius became the first king. No matter which way it is, you see, that, you see that there's this two sides to it, right? And that's all here in this picture. An amazing, amazing uh, uh, detail that is found. Finally, uh, next we would go to the leopard with four wings, uh, four heads and four wings. And we could spend a lot of time on each of these. We don't have time today to go into all of the, all of the symbols. But very, very interestingly, these four, um, these four heads represent the four, uh, four, first, four generals. And you remember that Alexander the Great, the Greek uh, conqueror, he died at a young age. And um, when he died, and he's on his deathbed, his wife, Roxana, was pregnant. Now, he was hoping that she would be pregnant with a son to be the heir to the kingdom, right? Um, he ended up being fearful that he would die, which he, he did die. He, he decided that he would not leave the care to the kingdom to one person, because his fear was this, if I leave the kingdom to one person... As soon as my, I'm dead, they're going to kill my son, if he's a son, and my wife, and they're going to take over. It's their, their kingdom then, right? And so he divided the caretaking of the empire to his five generals. And um, in fact, he passed away. Roxana did have a son. Um, they did kill her and the son. And they quickly began fighting among themselves, and almost immediately one of them was eliminated. So the Greek empire ended up being divided into four different regions, Ptolemy in Egypt, uh, Cassander, Lysimachus, um, the four that were, um, that were going to divide the kingdom. So it was, it was gone and it was divided into these four kingdoms represented by the four heads. Remember, it has, if wings represent speed, how many wings does the leopard have? It has four wings. So this is great speed, right? And this, in fact, represents how Alexander the Great would conquer um, very, very quickly. Uh, very, he, he revolutionized warfare. The, the Medes and Persians, Darius III was going to the battle. I think I mentioned this a week or two ago. Um, he went to battle with a million soldiers, the Battle of Arbella in 331. And um, uh, Alexander the Great had 50,000. But Darius' soldiers were 
charging on elephants. They're not exactly the fastest, they are strong. But um, Alexander's was much more mobile, and he was able to outflank and outmaneuver and work a, a decisive battle in 331. Um, finally, or finally, the next of the four empires would be Rome. And you remember that was represented by the legs of iron in the dream of Daniel chapter 2. Here we see it's represented by a strong, a great, uh, dreadful beast. In fact, Daniel had no words to describe it. Um, he might have just said, you know, T-Rex or something, um, if he had known about T-Rex. Um, but in the zoo in Babylon, there was no animal fierce enough for Daniel to use it to describe this beast. So he just says it's an animal, it's a beast. Um, in verse 7 of Daniel chapter 7, after this I saw in the night visions the fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth that devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. It was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Okay? And so we have that, that great and dreadful beast, we believe, representing Rome. And after Rome, these ten horns would come to power, and um, these ten horns would represent the same as the divided European uh, empire, the time of uh, feet mixed with iron and clay. And um, so here we find once again that God got it right, correct? There wasn't to be a fifth empire. Rome would disintegrate. It would last the longest, but it would eventually disintegrate, and there would be no one power that would take its place. In fact, it would be, it would be pretty much cut in half by the by the, by, the, um, by the division of the Eastern Roman Empire and the Western Roman Empire, the Turks and the, the Arab world would divide what had been the Roman Empire pretty much right down the middle. And so there would be no further kingdom, but ten would arise out of its place. And this is very clear. Um, it says uh, in verse 23, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom. Verse 24, ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise and another shall rise after them. So let's just take a minute to, to see what we're seeing here. Now, God is not just trying to be repetitive or redundant, but He is. You would think that God already told us this, right? Daniel chapter 2, we had Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, no further empire in that part of the world, but divided Europe, right? Why do we need to know this again? Well, it's very simple. God is employing what I'm going to call the repeat and enlarge principle. And the repeat and enlarge principle says that Bible prophecies often cover the same time period as a preceding prophecy, using different symbols, perhaps, but give more focus and information towards the end of time. In other words, if I were to just make a prophecy, and if I were to say, um, let me see if I can illustrate this. If I were to say, there's going to be a car crash. Would you know when that's going to happen? No. But if I'm detailing, if I'm writing a script for a movie, let's say, and I write the whole script, and I get to where there's a car crash, then you know exactly when the car crash is going to happen, don't you? Because you have the context. You see, if God were to just start spitting out events that are going to happen divorced from any type of a context or timeline, we would have no way of trying to figure out when they're supposed to fit in. Are they past? Are they future? Are... No, he, he, he marries them to this idea of a timeline that extends from the time of the prophet 
to the end of time. And that way, no matter where we are when we're studying that prophecy, when we're studying the prophecy, we can look back and we can see how these things were fulfilled and finding where we are, we know what's about to happen. Does that make sense? And so the only way for God to do that is to repeatedly go back and backtrack. He did it in Daniel chapter 2, but he's going to go back to the kingdom of Babylon again in Daniel chapter 7, isn't he? He's going to, he's going to give that whole context. But his point is not so we know more about Babylon. We already know from Daniel chapter 2 about enough about Babylon that we need to know. The whole point of the book of Daniel is it's for the last days. See? And so as Daniel, as Daniel goes through and repeats each, or as God repeats the timelines, he gives more and more information each time as he gets closer and closer to the end of time. Does that make sense? Are you with me on that? So the repeat and enlarged principle. I'm going to illustrate it. Um, through showing you the comparison of Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. And I know this isn't very graphical, but you can at least see what I'm, I'm saying here. You have Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, Antichrist, Judgment, Second Coming. These are things that are very clear in prophecy, although not in, all in Daniel chapter 2. Do we find that Antichrist at all mentioned in Daniel chapter 2? It's not there, is it? Um, we, we don't find the judgment in Daniel chapter 2 unless you consider the stone cut out without hands to be both this event, which is probably a pretty pretty accurate. But here you have the, chest, uh, the head of gold, the lion, the chest and arms of silver, the bear, the torso of bri of, uh, and thighs of brass, the leopard with four wings, the legs of iron, uh, the dreadful beast. And it would have ten horns towards the end of it. It'd break up into ten horns. But in Daniel chapter 7, we have more information. We have an information about an antichrist power, and we have an information about the um, judgment that would take place before Jesus comes. It's sort of like this. Suppose none of you had any smartphones. I know that's hard to imagine these days. Um, but you had no Google. And you were asked, you were given this map, and you said, I told you, I need you to take a package to this building right here on the corner of Russell Street and Catherine Street. How many of, how many of you could find that without any type of internet searchability. Um, it would be somewhat difficult unless you were from this area, probably, right? What's the problem? What's, I have, I've given you a map, right? Isn't this a map? What's the problem with this map? It's too small. You don't know where to put it. What else? You don't have the context, right? You don't know where Russell Street and Catherine Street is. And so if I were to give you a big map, that would give you a better idea what part of the world it's going to be in, right? Um, that still doesn't narrow it down very much, but it would give you some idea. At least you didn't go to New York City and start looking uh, for Russell Street and Catherine Street. Um, if I were to uh, sort of zoom in on one particular part of that map, it would get, that would narrow it down, right? Now, at least in a lifetime, you should be able to find Russell Street and Catherine Street if you went looking um, in the UK. Um, uh, uh, closer in would give you a map of London, right? And, um, and uh, as we zoom in, we're getting more and more details. But remember, you needed that big map to begin with, didn't you? And so when you get to, the, to, the, get to that, that closest map, it's actually here in London. Um, this is the the location being uh, blown up here is the, the Royal Theater of London. 
And um, it's on the corner of Russell Street and Catherine Street, just off of the, the Thames River and in downtown London. And so now you know what you need to be able to get there, right? This map alone doesn't get you there. You've got to have the bigger map. And that's what Repeat and Enlarge does. God goes over the same time period as the previous prophecy. And he does this, each vision does this. Daniel, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8 and 9, Daniel 10 through 12. And then when you get to the book of Revelation, you have the, three, you have the seven churches, you have the seven uh, uh, seals, you have the seven trumpets. All of them, again, doing the exact same thing Daniel is teaching us here in the book of, Revelation, in the book of Daniel. And so this is very, very important. It's repeat and large principle. We need that repetition and to go over that same time, uh, same period in order to give us context for where we're going. I like to illustrate it also like a pinch and zoom on a phone. You know, um, not too long ago I was watching a little kid. I don't remember where I was traveling or somewhere. I was watching a little kid, a little toddler. I don't think she could even talk yet. And she was looking at a picture book. You remember those? And she was becoming very, very annoyed and frustrated as she tried and tried to expand those pictures and to wipe those pictures. She couldn't understand how that picture wouldn't cooperate with her. Um, yeah, this is the world we're living in, right? Um, yeah, so... But this is sort of a little bit what God is doing. He gives us the prophecy, and each succeeding, each succeeding prophecy gives us the ability to, to zoom in more, especially on the very end of time, because that's what the prophecies are written for, and that's what God wants us to understand. And we're going to see that as we, as we go along. Um, and so we have these, these uh, four empires, ending with the division of Rome into ten different tribes, Ten different uh, kingdoms uh, represented by ten horns on the fourth beast. And uh, we, we see, history tells us that indeed happened. And um, the different parts, the different tribes, you might say, people groups of Europe divided. And, um, and you would think that would just be the end of the story. But no, Daniel 7 goes on. Look with me in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 8. It says, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Now, I, I want you to understand that the horn, a horn is a king or a kingdom, just like a beast is a king or a kingdom. Uh, we find that in verse 24, so that's not my interpretation, that's what the Bible says. But the Bible gives here in Daniel chapter 7 nine different characteristics of this little horn. Now, this isn't so that we can just you know, point fingers at other people so that we understand history, right? It's so that we understand history. We found a number of them here in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9, or verse 8. If we continue down in verse 24, it says a little more detail, verse 24 and 25, the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. He will speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given unto his hand until time and times and the dividing of time. Now, we're going to, we don't have a lot of time to look in great detail at each one of these, but I want to just summarize here. And I think even, at the, uh, even, as I, even as I say this, I think I already realized I forgot one of the, uh, I only put nine here, there's actually ten. 
In verse 25, it says it would be different from the first. Do you catch that? Or verse 24, it would be different from the first. Um, notice what these characteristics are. It would arise after the ten horns. So sometime after the breakup of the Roman Empire, generally accepted as around 476 A.D., uh, into the ten different uh, factions, um, this horn would arise. It would be another horn. It wouldn't be one of the ten. It would be a, another horn. It would be, um, as we mentioned, it would be different from the other horns. It would come up among the ten horns, so we'd expect it in the same geographic region as the uh, ten horns, Western Europe. It would uproot three of the horns. In other words, in order for it to come to power, it would have to devastate, do away with three of these other entities that had come out of the fall of Rome. It would have the vision of a man. It would have a mouth speaking great things. Verse 25 talks about blasphemous things. Or, um, and it would be persecuting God's people in verse 25. And it would persecute for three and a half prophetic years. Now, I want to tell you that um, God, did not, God did not leave many things for our questions or for just our uh, to, for us to wonder about when he gives us these descriptions. He made it very, very clear. Now, I've preached this for many years, and I remember, I want to tell you a story um, that really, really, really shocked me um, relating to this prophecy. Um, I'd preached this, this for many, many years. In fact, I remember one time I was preaching in the United States, I was preaching this sermon in an evening meeting, and uh, my cousin, who had been raised in an in a, in a, not in a Christian home, in an atheist home, uh, happened to be passing through the area, and she heard that I was there, and she said, well, I want to come and see you, so she came to my meeting. And um, I'll never forget, I went through the four beasts and talked about the history and in greater detail than we have today. Our time is rather limited today. I'd gone through all the different symbols and how they'd been fulfilled, and then I came to the little horn, and I showed all, all ten characteristics from Daniel chapter 7, and uh, how they had been fulfilled, and and I remember after the meeting, she came running up to me, and, and, and this is a, a cousin of mine who has a PhD. She's well-educated. She says, that was amazing. You have to write a book. People need to know about this. I'm like, well, this, I didn't come up with this, okay? This was, this was common knowledge. Every Protestant knew this, you know, back, uh, back around 250 years ago. But um, nevertheless... I, I was pretty confident in, in this prophecy and its interpretation, I have to say. You know, having studied history, but there's, in the back of my mind, there's this question. Are you, um, is it okay for pastors to have questions? In the back of my mind, there's this question that sort of says, well, how do I know that, you know, you know uh, the, the, the historians that we base a lot of this on were essentially Protestant historians, you know, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbons and, and others. How do I know that our interpretation of prophecy hasn't just been sort of a little preconditioned to be able for, to, for us to see all these prophecies being fulfilled exactly as we say they've been fulfilled? Is that a fair question? You understand what I'm saying? And um, I've continued to study, and I've continued to be convinced that, that that's not the case, that God gave so many details, that, uh, that it's, and, and history is clear enough that while you can find an experts that we can have experts that agree or disagree on anything, there's plenty of evidence to believe that God knows the future and God predicted the future. But there's one event in my life that radically affirmed this prophecy and how clear it is. I was preaching in the Ukraine. And in Ukraine, during this series, we had a, we had a, 
morning meeting. Well, I think it was about noon or two o'clock, maybe early afternoon. And it was on one side of town in some sort of a union hall. And then we would fold all of our screens and take down our projectors and sound system. And we'd, we would actually have to put it, cram it all into the pastor's little dacha, or yeah, I think it was a dacha, or a lada, probably a Roman, uh, Russian lada, and cram it all in the pastor's car. And then we would take the, um, they had an electric streetcar in this city of uh, Kanatop, Ukraine. And we would take the streetcar to the other side of town where there was the theater. And we would unpack and set up and do the same meeting again um, on both sides of town. So we were working seven days a week. We preached for three weeks, 42 sermons plus Sabbath mornings. I was, I was tired at the end. That was, that was back when I was young and, and foolish, I guess. But um, anyway, we were preaching a sermon twice, and I preached the same sermon with the same translator. And the, one, of the, one of the challenges was, I may have told you about this translator before. He was an excellent preacher. He had worked with one of the amazing facts evangelists that used to come every summer to Ukraine for five summers in a row, and had preached a lot of, you know, I mean, a lot of the same prophecies. And so this, this fellow knew the, pro, knew the sermons I was preaching inside and out probably better than I did. And, um, and uh, in fact, sometimes I would look over at him, I would say something, and he wouldn't translate it. So I would look over, and he would say, well, I already said that. Like, how did you already say that? Like, should I just sit down and let you preach, you know? Um, but anyway, he came to me at the end of the first sermon. Uh, I preached Daniel chapter 7. He came to me at the end of the first meeting, and he said, you know, you preached that sermon wrong. I said, okay, well, you know, I can always learn. Um, what, what did I do wrong? He said, well, you told them. You told them what power in history matches these characteristics. You can't tell them. You have to have them tell you. Now, there's some things you learn when doing public speaking. You learn to be a little wise about audience interaction. Now remember, I'm in the Ukraine. There might be a handful of people, maybe like four, in my audience out of 600 who are familiar with this prophecy, like have studied it and, you know, maybe they're Adventists or something like that. The vast majority of the people in that theater were raised in an atheistic culture, not a Christian Protestant background. And, and, and what I've learned is that if you have a whole bunch of people that don't, aren't really familiar with what you're talking about, you don't ask them questions that they're going to answer wrong. Because once they answer the wrong question, they're more, depend, they're more defensive. They're, they're going to protect it. They're going to defend that answer. And they're going, to, and they're, going, they're, they're going to have a harder time accepting the truth. The only time you ask questions, let's say if you're preaching an evangelistic series and you know that almost everyone in the room is Christian, you can ask a question that everyone's going to answer. And the ones who don't know the answer, they're going to look around and say, wow, well, it must be trite because like 300 of people here said that, you know? But... I'm not in that type of a situation. There's some Christians there who are Orthodox Christians, but they don't know this prophecy. And so I'm thinking, okay, um, if I were to try that in America, I would probably be left with a bunch of blank stares because Americans just don't know our later Roman history really well. In fact, 
you know, Americans, you know, too many Americans don't know the difference between Sweden and Switzerland, much less the ten tribes that, that you know, Rome broke up into. And um, our history, most Americans just are not history students. And I'm thinking, if I, that wouldn't work in America. In America, I say, you know, there's only one history, there's only one power in history that can possibly match this, these criterions. And I tell them. He said, no, you can't do that. He said, you have to give two, two characteristics, and then you have to say, now, some of you are already thinking, what could this power be? Give another two characteristics, and then say, some of you have already figured out what this power is. And then give another few characteristics, and say, I'll bet most of you already know there's only one power that can fill this. And when you get to the last, the tenth one, just say, what is the only power? Just ask them. And I'm thinking, okay, I guess this is my chance to find out whether Protestant Christian America has influenced our view of Roman history. So I did what he said at my second meeting, and with one voice, the entire audience said, the papacy. I was blown away. These are not people who have any Protestant background or heritage at all. These haven't been heard, they haven't been taught any American spin on history or world history or church history. These are people who spent 70 years under communism, diehard atheism. They taught history, and they taught it with their spin to it. But the history books that they knew pointed very clearly to only one power that could have been described coming right after the fall of Rome, a different type of horn, a little horn, it would uproot three horns, it would rule for 1260 years, three and a half prophetic years, it would be a persecuting power, right down the list, they knew. And I'll tell you, I walked out of that meeting more confident than ever in God's Word. God's Word is true, and it is clear. And I learned that I can trust it even more than I already knew that I could. And the good news is that that's not where the, that's not where the story ends. After this 1260-year reign, notice what's going to happen. It says in verse 25, He shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into His hand until time and times and the dividing of time. But the judgment shall sit... And they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and dominion, the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven, shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Sometimes we, and maybe even we in the Adventist church, we tend to think of the word judgment with a negative connotation, with some fear and trepidation. But I want to tell you, in Daniel chapter 7, according to what Daniel is writing, Daniel 7 tells us that the judgment is the best news possible. The judgment is all about restoring the kingdom. It's all about taking the dominion from the powers of this world and giving it to the people of the saints of the Most High. That's what the judgment's about. The judgment is good news. Notice with me the vision. That was just the interpretation of the vision. Skip with me back now to the original vision that the Dan the Daniel's having explained to him. It says in Daniel chapter 9, you remember? Uh, Daniel chapter 7, 
Verse 8 says there, those, those characteristics of the little horn, the mouth speaking great things. Verse 9 says, I beheld till thrones were cast down. The ancient of days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and his hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was like fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set. And the books were opened. Oh, it sounds ominous, but listen, it's glorious. And the end of the chapter, the explanation of this, makes that very plain, doesn't it? The judgment shall sit, take away the dominion from the little horn, shall give it to the saints of the Most High. The judgment shall sit, the, book, the books were opened, it says, and, um, and it, notice with me it says in verse 13, I saw, one, I saw in the night visions, behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days. And they brought him near before him. The picture that you have on the screen here is the artist's conception. Not of Jesus coming in the clouds at the second coming. No, this is a description of Jesus coming in the clouds to the judgment scene in the, in the, in the courtroom of heaven. Hundreds of millions of angels standing before God. The court being seated, the books being opened, and Jesus coming on a cloud. And what's he coming for? He's coming to receive his kingdom. Now, as we would expect, Daniel chapter 8 is going to give us more information about the last parts of this prophecy, right? And Daniel 8 actually, actually goes so far, so specifically, to tell us the timing. We already know it's going to be after the 1260 years. So we'd expect it sometime after 1798, when the little horn was taken out of power. But Daniel chapter 8 goes even further in telling us more specifically after 1798, but before the second coming, when would we expect the judgment to begin? It's a glorious event. Verse 14, And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Are you thankful? Are you thankful we know how the story ends? Yeah, we're living in those feet part of iron and part of clay. We're living in the time of the, of the divided kingdom, the, the ten horns, and even after the, the 1260-year reign of the little horn, but we're living in the time, I believe, just before Jesus received his, his kingdom. We're living in the time when the marriage of the Lamb is being consummated, and someday, very soon, we're all going to be able to join him for the marriage supper. Wow, what an exciting time to be alive. Daniel, Daniel chapter 2 taught me that God's in charge. Daniel chapter 7 teaches me that God's going to make all things right. Daniel 2, remember Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, there's a God who reveals secrets. Daniel chapter 7 tells us that same God who reveals secrets is going to open the books in transparency and honesty, every lie ever told will be seen. Every fact will be brought to light. The truth is going to be exposed to the entire universe. So that, you know, sometimes we feel like maybe we've been lied about. Maybe something's not been fair. You know what? God's going to make all things right. He is. Every secret's going to be made plain. Every, every lie is going to be clear, Right? We can trust that kind of a God. We want, I want to be there in that day, don't you? I want to be there and to be um, able 
to be a part of his kingdom, which will be an everlasting kingdom. Father in heaven, today we just thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is coming again, that he is going to receive from you finally and for eternity, for eternity his kingdom, and that's going to be a kingdom that will never pass away. I pray, Father, we might be a part of that kingdom. I pray that you would give us greater confidence. We're trying to understand where Adventists came from and how we find our roots. I pray that we would have greater confidence in these scriptures and these prophecies. We believe that you are still coming again soon. May we each be faithful, we pray in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.